We're starting a new series today, and we're going back to doing kind of the bread and butter of what I do and of what our church does, and that is we're going to do a series through a book of the Bible. And we're going to be looking at the little letter of James. We're going to look at the first eight verses today. James chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. Hear the word of the Lord. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Let me tell you about some of the most joyful people I know. We were in a Bible study in Guadalajara, and we were studying Philippians. And if you know anything about Philippians, there's an emphasis on joy. And there's actually repeated command for us to be joyful. Well, I wrote this Bible study, and it was a series of questions, and we were at this couple's house and other people around the table. And one of the questions was, how do you struggle to maintain joy in your life? What do you do when you're not joyful, and how do you try to recover joy? And the most amazing part about that that question was, this couple was completely bewildered by the question. They didn't understand the question, because they said, well, we're always joyful. And the rest of us around the table were talking about how we sometimes lack joy and how we struggle and how we try to recover it. And they were a bit mystified. So we were amazed at them and they were amazed at us that we didn't always experience joy. And I have to say that they really were like that. I I always found them to be cheerful and happy and upbeat. And not because everything was going so well in their lives, but because they had Jesus. Another woman I know, uh, she's in her 80s, and she spends her days going to uh, nursing homes and assisted living places where she visits people, sometimes who are younger than she is. Sometimes she takes her dog or food, and she goes to, to talk to them about Jesus and to cheer them up. And another thing she loves to do is to go to prisons, and she loves to teach people how to read. And she just wrote me this last week and said, I just got to go and visit with a woman who's 49 and she's never read the Bible and she was so happy to to hear about the love of God and she can't wait to get out of prison because she wants to tell her grandchildren about the love of God as well. And she goes through life like that, being joyful and spreading joy. Now why do I bring up these examples? Because in this letter, that's how James leads off. He leads off with this command for us as Christians to be joyful. But before we get to that command, let's learn a little bit about the letter. James, who he was, who to whom he was writing. He introduces himself very simply. He says, James, a servant of God 
and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only time in, in the New Testament where somebody describes himself as a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he uses the word, the common word for slave. Now, he expects people to know who he was because he didn't identify himself. He expected his readers to know exactly who he was. Uh, but his readers have an advantage that we don't have. Uh, there has been debate throughout church history about who this was because there are a number of men named James in the New Testament. But instead of going through all the arguments, I'll cut right to the chase because the best, uh, the best idea, the, the one that has the most support and makes the most sense, is it is the one whom Paul calls the Lord's brother. In Galatians chapter 1, uh, 1.19, Paul refers to James, the Lord's brother. And then if we go back to the lists of the family of Jesus, the brothers and sisters of Jesus, we find in that that there was one called James. And then if we go to the book of Acts, and we see who, after Peter, uh, became the leader in the Jerusalem church, we find that it was James. When Peter got released from prison, he says, go and tell James and the rest of the brothers. And when Paul visited Jerusalem, he said, I visited James. And then when there was a letter that had to be sent out uh, in the name of the apostles, it was James who was the one who was behind the, the writing of that letter. And then later on, when Paul came back again and there were threats on his life, he went to James and James gave him some advice about how to handle himself while he was in Jerusalem. And so uh, this James, who was later called James the Just, uh, he was, according to what we know from the Scripture, but also from later church history, he lived as a pious Jew, Jewish Christian, but a pious Jewish man, because he was ministering where? In Jerusalem. And so he needed to live that way in order to minister to his his uh, his his co uh, his co-religionists or his rather his uh, his Jewish brothers and sisters and so uh, we have we have uh, history about him from Christian historians but also from Josephus the Jewish historian and they report that he was he was killed he was killed in 62 AD and he's the the biggest the leading candidate because he's the kind of person who would have the stature to write a letter that just identifies himself as what James. The other James weren't so well known. So that is likely the one who wrote this letter. It all fits. But he introduced himself in this way. He simply called himself a servant. Now he could have pulled some rank here, couldn't he? He could have said, brother of the Lord, as Paul called him. Or he could have said, uh, leader in the church in Jerusalem. But he didn't say that. He simply said, James, a servant or a slave of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that prepares us for this letter. Because James is putting an example that he's going to urge on us. This letter is all about submitting to God. And so what does he, what does he do at the very beginning identifying himself? He says, I'm one, thanks be to God, I'm one who is submitted to God. I'm, I am his slave, and I am a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will urge that same posture on us. He, he writes this letter to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Now we know that He's using some metaphorical language here because the 12 tribes no longer existed as such. They had been spread around and diluted and exiled and brought back and scattered successively by the Assyrians 
and the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans. And so they no longer had tribal uh, identification where they could all know who they were, which tribe was which. And so we find in the prophets and then even in, in the New Testament, we find that the 12 tribes are uh, used to symbolize the, the people of God that, that he would bring back together, a renewed people of God, a renewed Israel that he would reconstitute. And so as we look at uh, this letter to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, that's the word diaspora, that's referring to the dispersion of the Jews uh, now around the Roman Empire, we can surmise that or conclude that James was writing to other Jewish Christians, other Jewish Christians. Now, there is a question of whether he was writing to Gentile Christians as well, and including Gentile Christians in this designation of the 12 tribes, because they're part of the the newly constituted people of God in Christ. There is some indication that that could be true, because if you look at 1 Peter 1.1, Peter identifies his readers, almost certainly Gentile readers, as members of the diaspora, members of the dispersion. And if you find, you look in in the letters of Paul, he's always emphasizing that those who are in Christ Jesus are part of the people of God, the new Israel, the true Israel, the reconstituted and renewed Israel. However that may be, however that may be, um, I think you will find James to be very relevant whether you have Jewish background or non-Jewish background, I think you will have, find James to be very, very relevant to your life. And that's the whole point of this letter. And in fact, it's not exactly a letter, as we might think about a letter. What it really is, there's this very brief greeting, and then it is a series of sermonettes. It's a series of sermonettes on topics, and topics of life, how we are to live our lives. And as we read through these sermonettes, it actually, as I mentioned before I read Proverbs in the Old Testament reading, it has an Old Testament feel to it. It feels like we might be in the Old Testament. And uh, we find that he mentions Jesus only twice. He maybe mentions the Holy Spirit once. And uh, he was assuming something that other letters preach. His main concern was that Christians live out our faith in the world, which we can conclude that even by this time, that there were those who had a proper understanding of Jesus, a proper understanding of the gospel, but their lives were not reflecting their faith. And so what is preached openly in Peter and Paul and John, James is assuming, and by the way, this might be the first uh, the first writing of the New Testament, this might be the oldest one, when there, there wasn't a need yet to remind people of the gospel because it was so fresh and new. They had the gospel, but what was lacking was their life. Their life was not living up to the, the measure of the gospel. And he may, his main concern was to help Christians live out our faith. Does that sound relevant to you as well? Is it still true that that Christians don't always live up to what we profess? Absolutely. So this is a very, very practical letter. But it does present some challenges to us. The challenge is not, like in some other parts of the Scripture, what is he trying to say? In some parts of the Scripture, we scratch our heads and we really work to try to figure out what is he trying to say, what does he want us to do? The problem with James is not that. 
It is all too clear what he wants us to do. It is very, very clear. Uh, The problems are these, the challenges. The challenges are, number one, to remember the gospel that is behind what James is saying. And we will try to do that all through here. Because we need to remember this is Christian scripture. And James is assuming something that we may not be so clear on as his readers were. And so we need to remember that the gospel is behind what James has to say. And we we can do that in two senses, or in two ways. We can remember that James is assuming faith in Jesus Christ. He's assuming people understand what Jesus did. That Jesus is God's Son. That Jesus lived a perfect life. That Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That He was raised from the dead on the third day. And that by believing in Christ, we can have our sins forgiven, and we can be transformed, and we can have the gift of eternal life. He was assuming that faith in His readers. But also, I think you will find a need for a remembrance of the Gospel as we read His instructions. And as we read His instructions, we will find that they are very, very challenging. Very, very challenging. And we will come to the end of ourselves very, very quickly. We will hear what He challenges us to do, even today in this very first command, and we will say, how can I do that? Who is sufficient to that? Who is able to do that? And the answer is, we need Jesus. And so as we hear these commands and these instructions for practical living, we will, we will need to run to Jesus again in faith and say, I need your help. I need for you to enable me to do what you're calling me to do. The second challenge of James is this. To figure out the flow of his thoughts. It's really hard to diagram or outline the book of James. He just seems to flow from one thing to another. But he does something very clever. He uses catchphrases. Catchphrases. So he uses a phrase, and then it's almost like, speaking of that, then he goes to something related, using a catchphrase. And we'll see how he does that, I think, four times in these first opening verses. And the final thing, and this is the biggest challenge of James is to put into practice what he says we should do. So let's get to the first thing he says we should do, and you'll see why this is so challenging. Against the background of persecution and poverty, we know that his readers were persecuted and they were suffering poverty. So they, against this background, persecution and poverty, James urged them to be joyful. To be joyful, not in spite of their circumstances, but because of their circumstances. Now, do you see already how challenging this is? To be joyful. Look at what he says in verse 2. This is how he leads off. Count it all joy, my brothers. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And he leaves it very vague so that any kind of trial would fit under that. Any kind of trial that we might Uh, experience in this life, large or small, he says, that is an opportunity for joy. Now, James, we see the first catchphrase here. Um, The word greetings and the word joy in Greek are homophones. homophones. In other words, they sound alike. And that's the kind of thing he does to advance his, his, his argument. So he says, greetings... Uh, to those twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings, consider it all joy. And those, those have similar sounds in Greek. 
So that's how he gets into the topic of joy. And uh, what he says is to be to take any kind of trial that we might have as an opportunity. Now, how does that work? He goes on to explain. Verse 3. For you know, and here's the why, here's the how, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. He doesn't say that the trials are good in and of themselves. Poverty is not a good thing in and of itself. Ill health is not a good thing in and of itself. On the contrary, death is not a good thing in and of itself. Persecution is not a good thing in and of itself. But all of these, and smaller trials as well, are opportunities to grow in steadfastness, in perseverance. And uh, these are opportunities that test our faith like peace and prosperity do not. Peace and, pro- peace and prosperity have their tests, but they are, are tests that aren't as acute as, as persecution and poverty and other kinds of trials. And what he says here is that if we respond in faith and joy to the trials that God brings into our lives, we will grow in steadfastness, and then steadfastness will take over. Look at verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And unfortunately, in, in this translation, fine translation, but it, 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 uh, you can't see the, the next catchphrase. He says, and let steadfast have its perfect effect, speaking of perfect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So that's the payoff. That's why he says to be joyful. Why? Well, how many of us would like to be able to say, I'm complete. I am lacking in nothing whatsoever. I have and am everything I need and should be. Can you imagine? It's really beyond our comprehension. To, to think that we might experience that kind of perfection, that, might, that kind of completeness. But he's saying, that's the end goal. That's the purpose of trials in your lives. And so if you, can, if you can look at the end goal when you're in the midst of the trial, you can have joy not because the trial itself is joyful, on the contrary, it's sorrowful, but if you can look to the end, the purpose of that trial to produce steadfastness in you, and the purpose of that steadfastness to produce perfection, completeness, and not lacking in anything, then even in the midst of the trial, he's saying, you can have joy. Now this, um, this perspective is not just James. Uh, um, this is Paul's perspective as well. So we could say this is the New Testament perspective about trials. Uh, if you go to Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 5, Paul says, not only that, not only that, oh, by the way, let's back up a little bit. Verse 2, he says, through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Wow, rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. And now he says, but there's something even better. He's going to build. And he says, not only that, but we also, we rejoice also in our sufferings knowing that sufferings produce endurance. 
And endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given us. This is the perspective in Paul's letters as well. I I saw a woman converted to Christ as I was reading these verses. She was a woman that we had known in Maryland when we were there for just three years before we got to be missionaries in Mexico for 28. And we got to know her a little bit. She had children in our church who were about my age. I was in my 20s at the time. But uh, she was a very hard woman. She'd had a very, very hard life. Nothing was ever given to her. She had to, to scrape and scratch and struggle for everything she had. And she was able to get her children uh, ahead in life. But she suffered terribly. And she was hardened because of her experience in life. And I would go and try to tell her about the love of God. And, and she just couldn't get it. It was, it was a hard sell for her because she had not experienced that in her life. Well, years later, we went back and we spent some time in Maryland and I looked her up, and I, I started visiting her. By that time, she was she was been a smoker all her life, and she was on oxygen. She was restricted to her little apartment, and there she was by herself in the apartment. And she was still going. She was still smoking, but she was smoking and then going to the oxygen tank. And because the the doctor said you're going to die of this anyway, and she knew she was at the end. And so I would go and try to tell her about the gospel, and it just wasn't getting through. And I'd pray for her, and I just wasn't getting anywhere. And so I didn't know what else to do. And I said, could I come by and just read Scripture to you? And that's all I did. I just go by and I read to her. And it didn't seem to be getting through. And so I was reading through Romans with her. And uh, I got to this point. And I read, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given us. And she said, stop! Stop! Read that again. And so I read it again. And that's how she finally understood the love of God. Because she finally saw that, that perhaps the suffering that she had experienced all through her life could produce something good and not just grind her down time and time again. She didn't live many months after that, but she died with hope. She died because finally the love of God had broken through to her. Now that love, Paul goes on to explain, he says, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then he makes the comparison and says, for scarcely... Will anybody die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die? But God shows His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But not only Paul, not only James, if you go to 1 Peter as well, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And so, what is Peter saying? 
We have two horizons to this, this perfection. We have two horizons to this completeness in our lives. There is growth toward it in our lives, and there is the completeness of it when Christ comes again. And uh, we can be sure that that's what God is doing in our lives, and that is His purpose in our lives, and He is more concerned about our perfection than we are. How do we know that? Because we keep having trials. And that means we're not there yet. I have this bad habit. When something comes into my life that is a setback and it's very inopportune, I'm trying to get something accomplished and something throws a monkey wrench into the operation. Does that ever happen to any of you? I have this tendency, especially when I'm by myself, I'll catch myself, I'll catch myself saying this. I'll say, I don't need this right now. And then I stop, and I think, well, I must. I must need this right now, because God has brought it into my life. And so I must need this right now. You know, if if I could, as a father, I would make the lives of my children without any suffering whatsoever. And that would be a terrible mistake. That would be a terrible mistake. And all the parents are nodding. That's what we would love to do for our children. Take every bit of suffering out of their lives. And we would be robbing them of the opportunities that God gives them for growth. God does not rob us of those opportunities. Because He is intent on making us like Jesus. He is intent on making us perfect and complete. He is intent on us not lacking anything. And He will keep working until that is accomplished. And therefore, James says, rejoice. Because that's what's going on here. That's what God is doing in your life. Now, the next section... Going back to James, is another catchphrase. If you look at four, it ends with what? Not lacking in anything. Lacking in nothing. And then, James does something like this. Speaking of lacking, if any of you lacks wisdom. So here's the next catchphrase. If any of you lacks wisdom. Now, what he's doing here is saying, he's anticipating we're, we're getting the idea, aren't we? We're saying, okay, this trial is not without purpose. It's not against me. It is for my perfection. But I'm still having trouble with this joy thing in the midst of my trial. I, I'm not up to that yet. I'm, I'm lacking in something to be able to do that yet. And he says, oh, lacking. Well, what you lack is wisdom. That's what you lack in order to be able to live like this in the midst of your trial. And if you lack wisdom, he gives us the solution. If any of you lacks wisdom, if any of you lacks wisdom in the midst of your trial to know how to live joyfully, then let him ask God. Let her ask God. And he says here that God gives generously or simply or sincerely to all without reproach, without rebuking us for what we lack, He doesn't say, oh, I can't believe you lack that. On the contrary, he's saying, I'm so glad you asked. I want to give you what you lack. And it says, and it will be given to him. 
And this is consistent with the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. Where do we get wisdom? What is the, what is the beginning of wisdom? It is the fear of the Lord. It is the knowledge of God. Where are we going to get wisdom? We're going to get it from God. And so if you need wisdom, if you need wisdom in the midst of your trial, where are you going to get it? Ask God. And then, this is the next cast phrase. You can hear James sort of saying, well, speaking of asking... He says, ask God in verse 5 and then verse 6, but let him ask, and now he introduces the next theme, in faith. Let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the winds. We have a constant illustration of that living near the beach, don't we? And we don't have the beautiful curling waves of Hawaii or California. What do we have here, those of us who have tried to surf here? We have wind chop. We have the, the waves that just get driven around. They're not beautifully formed. They're difficult. That's why the, the East Coast surfers never were able to live up to the, the, the competition with the West Coast surfers. They have real waves out there. We have wind chop. But we have a great illustration of what he's saying. Go out and, and experience that wind chop. And you get the current going this way and the waves going that way and the wind pushing you this way and that. And then the undertow sucking you back out. He says, that's what your life will be like if you're wavering. Wavering in what you think about God. He's saying, let him ask in faith. Faith in what? Faith in the God who gives generously and without reproach. Faith in the love of God. Faith in what God is like. And not wavering in what we think about God. Maybe He is or maybe He's not. Maybe He's for me. Maybe He's against me. Maybe I should ask. Maybe I shouldn't. He says, if you're like that, you will be constantly unstable. And here James recognizes the possibility that we see perhaps in our own lives or in the lives of other believers, the possibility that we might profess a genuine faith in Christ but be living unstable lives. Uh, He says, driven and tossed by the wind. And and, and the bad part of that, he says, your lives will be unstable. You will be, and it it may be that he made this up, this word in verse 8, he is a double-minded man. He looks like it's the first time we find this in literature. It's a two-souled man or woman. A two-souled. With, with two voices going on inside this person. A yes and a no about God. And he says, that's not how you'll receive anything from the Lord. You need to ask in faith and you will receive. And it sounds very much like Jesus' teaching, doesn't it? To ask in faith and so receive. Now, I want you to notice, once again, that what is James assuming? He's assuming faith. He's assuming Jesus. He's assuming knowledge of Jesus, understanding of the Gospel. And he is saying, but this is how you live if you have faith. You don't need to live unstable lives. You can have a single idea about God, a constant faith and trust in Him. That would look very much like that new old hymn that we just sang. We sang it for the first time today. Maybe some of you know it. But let me read the words to you again uh, so that you might hear them again because this is the kind of faith that James is urging upon us in the midst of trials. And you'll see that the backdrop of this hymn is not, not quiet waters, but it's trials. Whatever my God ordains is right. In His love I am abiding I will be still in all He does and follow where He is guiding. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me that I shall not fall, and so to Him 
I leave it all. Whatever my God ordains is right. He never will deceive me. He leads me by the proper path. I know He will not leave me. I take content what He has sent. His hand can turn my griefs away and patiently I wait His day. Whatever my God ordains is right. Here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow or need or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care circles me there. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to Him I leave it all. Whatever my God ordains is right. Though now this cup in drinking, bitter it seems to my faint heart, I take it all unshrinking. My God is true, each morn anew. Sweet comfort yet shall fill my heart, and pain and sorrow shall depart. Let me tell you a little more about that couple that didn't understand why we were struggling with joy. And let me tell you a little more about that lady in her 80s that has constant joy. Jorge, the husband in this couple, they have two beautiful daughters. But one day he was in his car and got in an accident with a tractor trailer. And it left him a quadriplegic. And he was a quadriplegic for a while, and his wife would carry him around in the back of a specially outfitted van on his stretcher. Amazingly, we could probably say miraculously, he recovered feeling up to about his chest. And so he recovered use of his arms. And he is very enterprising, and he designed his pickup truck so that he could drive it, and he could hoist his wheelchair into the back, and he was able to get around that way and run his own business. He moved to Guadalajara to establish a business. His business didn't make it. And so he had to move back from where he came. And he had a beautiful house in Guadalajara, but he had to leave quickly and the market was down. And so he sold it for about half of what he'd wanted originally or maybe even a third of that. And so this is the man that has joy constantly. This is the the wife of this man who has constant joy. He lost his legs, but he didn't lose his joy. He lost his business, but he didn't lose his joy. He lost his home, but he didn't lose his joy. Why not? Well, because through that accident, he met Jesus. And if you will meet Jorge today, when he talks about his accident, he calls it the blessed accident. The blessed accident. Why? Because through that blessed accident, he met the Savior. Let me tell you about this lady who goes around to prisons and to assisted living centers and spreads joy. She was married and had five kids. Her oldest died in infancy, or very young. Her third, the only daughter, died when she was about upper 30s or 40, and left behind two small children. And just a few years ago, actually since we moved back here, her, her oldest, the one who's now oldest, he just died in his 60s, suddenly and tragically. And also her husband died. So she lost three of her five children, but she didn't lose her joy. She lost her husband of some 50 years, but she didn't lose her joy. What's the secret? 
she had Jesus. She does get down sometimes. And she wrote me this past week, and I asked her, can I talk about you in my sermon? And I asked Jorge and Cynthia as well, and they said, sure. She said, you know, I was feeling a little lonely the other day. But then I went to Jesus, and he restored my joy. So yeah, not perfect yet, but I have to say that I look to people like that, and I say, it's possible. Because when I look at this command, first I think, how is that possible? Is this really realistic to live like this? And I conclude that it is for two reasons. Because God said it, and I've seen it. I've seen it. Let's pray. Our God, I thank You for the examples that I've seen of joy and trial. Church history is full of them. People singing on the way to meet the lions or singing in prison, praying and giving thanks while being beaten. But I've seen it in people I know. Normal people that don't go down in history as saints and martyrs. And they live out their lives with joy. Not because their lives are easy. The ones I've mentioned today have suffered far more than I've ever suffered. But I thank You for their joy. And I pray for us, O God, that we would have faith to look at the long game, to look at what You are doing in our lives, and that we would not shortcut that that process by being glum when trials come into our lives. Oh God, I pray that You would give us the faith and the wisdom to have joy and to abide in in what You are doing in our lives, knowing that what You are doing is right, and it is for our good, and it is for Your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.